Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Just by way of show of hands, how many of you have ever gone whitewater rafting? I'm just curious. More of you than I would have thought. Now, anybody ever been whitewater canoeing? Yeah, that's a whole different ball game right there. I have actually not ever done either, but I know one of the differences between the two is is what they tell you before you leave. Like if you've got a guide and you've, you've never done this before and they're like, okay, we're going to get to the rapids and some stuff's going to start happening. Well, if you're in a raft, whitewater rafting, if you go through the rapids and they're kind of hard, you can get thrown. But the boat doesn't sink. And so it can, I guess it can be dangerous. I'm sure it can be dangerous, but um, which I probably shouldn't tell you because Ryan takes the kids whitewater rafting from time to time. Uh, I don't think we've lost any of them yet. We we uh, we sent, seem to bring back the same number that we sent, which is the goal. So, um, but they'll tell you, hey, you know, when we hit the rapids, it, there are certain things you should do. If you get thrown from the boat, swim back to the boat as quick as you can, and climb back in. Um, the boat doesn't sink when you go whitewater rafting. When you go whitewater canoeing, the instructions are different. Like they would say, okay, we're going to come up on class. I don't know where they call them, C or 3, or I'm not sure how they do that, but we're going to come on a certain class of rapids. It's going to get kind of dicey. You're going to be tempted when the boat starts to rock. You're going to be tempted to let go of your oar and grab the side of the boat. And the, the guide will look at you and say, resist with everything in you the intuitive feeling that you have to grab the side of the canoe and let go of the oar. You don't want to do that. You want to use the oar to steady you. Because if you try to grab hold of the side of the boat, you're going to start to rock, and eventually you're going to tip over. And when that boat tips over, it does not float. It fills with water, and it gets really, really hard to get righted again. So there's a temptation to, to, to grab a hold of the side of the boat whenever trouble starts, and the guide would tell you, use your oar to steady yourself. When we are afraid, we have a very similar reaction to that When we're afraid because of circumstances that have spun out of our control or we got a bad report from a doctor or, you know, as a parent, a a teacher called and we got some news that we didn't like, the boss walks in with that look on his face that, you you know, is never a a good look. Um, We're afraid. We have this temptation instinctively to grab on to the side of the boat and to go with feelings and to take our hands off the oar and to just grab the side of that canoe. And I would guess that many of us in the room this morning might say my greatest regrets stem from a time or an environment when I was afraid and I did what seemed natural to me and as a result, I turned the canoe over and I complicated my life. And it was already a bad situation and I was already afraid, but I felt like I needed to do something to get my life under control and to get it back to where it was. And I made a decision that I have regretted ever since. That may be someone's story in here this morning. And Brett, the reason I did it, it just seemed like the right thing to do in the moment because of what was going on in my life. All of us respond differently to fear. Some of us panic. Some of us leverage influence. Some of us start writing checks. Some of us start calling people. But there's something in us that says, I've got to do something to keep this bad thing from happening. You might be on the other side of the equation this morning, and and when you get afraid, you just go into denial. And you just pretend like nothing's wrong, and people are asking, hey, how's it going? And you're you're, you're saying, it's fine, I'm fine. And they say, boy, you don't look fine. 
You you look scared. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, everything on us is shaking and you you can't even deal with it, but you just deny the whole thing. Like everything's going to be fine. The question is, what is the proper response when we are faced with our fears? You, You can talk to men who are on the brink of financial ruin and as they teeter on that ruin, You can see them trying to take control and do something that will right the ship. And oftentimes you hear the stories of guys that got into bad financial straits and they make decisions that they shouldn't have made. I heard a story last night about somebody that got into a bad shape. Things got out of control for them. They made a decision they shouldn't have made and they made it because they were afraid. And it complicated their situation. Some people marry and they marry the wrong person because they're afraid of being alone for the rest of their life. Maybe you're in a relationship now and you're thinking about getting married, but you know you shouldn't marry that person. You know it's not a good relationship, and everybody's telling you, get out, get out, get out. But you're afraid. And you know the right thing to do is to get out, but instinctively you stay in, or you compromise morally to keep him or her around. And you know it's not right, but you're afraid you're going to lose them. And you don't want to lose them. So the question I want to answer this morning is, What are we supposed to do in that moment when the phone rings? When we get that call and it's bad news or it tends to scare us? When that old familiar feeling that you've had over and over, that feeling of I've got to be in control, rears its ugly head in your life? The fear of abandonment, insecurity, whatever it is. In that moment, what are we to do? What is the first line of defense against fear? good news is there's a great example for us in the scriptures. Um, The fellow we're going to look at today was a leader. He had a great deal to lose. He was under unbelievable pressure as a leader, and yet he got it right. And his first line of defense against fear serves as a wonderful, wonderful example for us uh, today. I've already had people walking out this morning and said, Brett, I needed to hear what you said this morning. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's possible that you've never heard this story before. I'm sure you just are, in your quiet time, you're reading 2 Chronicles all the time, right? I'm sure that's where you, you're, what a coincidence. I was reading 2 Chronicles this morning, Brett. I, I have a feeling that this story we're going to look at this morning might not be one of the stories that you have ever heard in, in your life. Maybe you've heard it, but you're not real familiar with it, not like, you know, some of the stories we've looked at in the, in the last couple of weeks. 2 Chronicles 20. Let me tell you about the main character. His name is Jehoshaphat. He was the king of Judah. After Solomon, the son of David, died, the kingdom of Israel was split into two parts, the northern part and the southern part, and they were separated, and they were two separate kingdoms. Jehoshaphat eventually became the king of the southern part in the region of Israel that they called Judah. He was a very good king. He feared God, he loved God, and he really tried to turn the people's hearts toward God. He made a few mistakes along the way, but all in all, he was a pretty good king. And in particular, this particular part of his life, we find him up against circumstances that caused him a great deal of fear. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, if I can get my voice clear, we're going to begin with verse 1. After this, and you'd have to go back to 19 to see what this is, but he's basically trying to turn people's hearts to God. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Munites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. These were three nations that were across the Dead Sea from Judah and to the south. 
And these three countries get together and they decided that they are going to invade Judah. So they come down around the bottom of the Dead Sea and they begin to head north toward Jerusalem, toward Jehoshaphat and his people. Verse 2, some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon, Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Verse 3 begins with the word alarmed, and I don't think it would be a stretch to substitute the word afraid right there. And I want you to look what happens when Jehoshaphat becomes alarmed or afraid. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. If you've got a pen in hand and you've got your Bible open, I would underline that particular phrase. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. He literally turned his attention to God. And he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. And we could just stop right there and spend the rest of our time just on that one verse. Here's a guy who's the king of a nation, and he's supposed to be in charge and know all the answers and, and have all the answers to all the questions that people would ask. And he's supposed to instill a sense of confidence in his people as the king. Here's a guy who understands that his country is under attack, and the Bible says that he turned his attention from the messenger and from the message, and he puts his attention and his focus on the Lord. And he proclaims a fast, which is really... Just another way to say, it's a, a fast is nothing more than a form of focus. A, a fast focuses us on God. And the reason we're going to focus on these verses over the next several minutes is this. When, when I'm afraid, I have a hard time turning my heart to the Lord. And I think that's true of most of us. Here's what we do. We turn our mouths to the Lord. We do a lot of this. But our hearts stay locked in on the events and the circumstances that cause us to be afraid. So our eyes get locked in on the thing that is going wrong and all the circumstances and all the things that we want to get involved in. And, 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 and if I don't get involved in, in this and if I don't do this, then this is going to happen and i got to get in charge. And our mouths start talking to God. God, you got to do, you got to do. And we all pray. But the brilliance of this passage is not that Jehoshaphat prayed. You may be here today, you might not even believe in God, but when things don't go your way and things go bad, it's possible that you pray. There's a statistic, I don't know what the it's in like the 30s, 30% of atheists pray. I don't know if you know that or not. But 30%, some, some like 36 or some number like that, percent of atheists claim to pray to something. Because here's what's going on. God, you know, whoever you are or whatever you are, I don't know what's out there, but I'm going to hedge my bets. And if you're out there, I just want to have a good, you know, relationship. Not even sure I believe, but we all pray when we're afraid. That's not unique. What's unique, as we will see, is that Jehoshaphat made a decision to turn his heart and his attention and his eyes away from the problem, away from the message, away from the messenger, and fix his heart on God. And he proclaims a fast for everybody. And there's a great lesson here for leaders too. As a leader, and, and for me especially as a father, those of us who are dads in the room, you'll understand this. I never really liked to think that my kids would think that I was afraid of something, right? You know, because me dad and, you know, I don't want my kids to ever think that I'm afraid of something. And so, um, you know, we kind of adopt this mentality. I'm dad and I'm not afraid of anything. And, and, and most of what our kids are afraid of, we're not afraid of anyway. So we always look fearless to them. 
And if we're not real careful, our kids can grow up thinking dad's never afraid. And that's just simply not true because all of us as dads, we get afraid from time to time. And we may not show it, but we're afraid from time to time. And the beauty of this story is here's a king who is not afraid to let his people know, hey, I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. You guys are looking at me for answers. I don't have the answers to this dilemma. I don't know what's going on. So I'm willing to go public with my fear and my concern, and I'm calling on the nation to come and meet me, and let's pray and let's fast. And let's not look to me for answers. Let's look to God in heaven. He's got the answers to solve the problems for us and to get us through this very difficult situation. And men, one of the greatest things that you can do for your kids is to model what to do with your fears. And instead of pretending that we're never afraid, we should confess to our families when we are afraid and we should follow the pattern that's going to be uh, exemplified for us this morning as Jehoshaphat goes public with his fear. And in doing so, he turned his heart and he turned his attention away from the fear and he focused on God. He prays a prayer, he assembles the people, he calls for a fast, and then he gives us the model prayer for a scared person. If you're here this morning and you're facing something on your horizon, you don't know, it's kind of got you a little worried, maybe a lot worried. You don't know what's going to happen. And you're, you know, you, if you, we were in a corner somewhere just having a private conversation, you'd say, Brett, I don't want anybody to know this, but I'm afraid. I'm really scared. You're about to see a prayer. And I would recommend that you highlight or circle or, you know, around here we write in our Bibles, okay? Write in it. Make notes, do what you got to do to make sure you can find this because you're going to see a model prayer. Now, you may have to change some words and you may have to fill in some blanks, but but this is a pattern that when we pray, when we're afraid, we can use this. Verse 4, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not what my prayers sound like when I get scared. When I pray, I tend to pray about what it is that I'm scared about. But Jehoshaphat starts his prayer someplace completely different because he's made up his mind to turn his mind and heart away from the messenger and away from the message and away from the fear and to look at God. And he begins his prayer by restating what it is in his heart he knows to be true. And he reiterates really what we learned last week, that God, you are able... You're able. I can look back in the past and I can see what you've done. You're in charge. Everything is under your feet. And God, you're God, not me. See, that's a great place to start. Because when you start grabbing the side of the canoe, really what you're saying is, I'm in charge and I'm God. I I got this. I can handle this. But that's when we're to begin praying when we're scared. God, you're able. You're big, you're God, and I'm not. I don't know what to do, but you know what to do. He goes from there, and he begins to rehearse what God has done for him in the past. Look at verse 7. Our God 
Did you not drive out the inhabitants of the, of the land before the people Israel, before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. So after he says, God, you're able because you're God, he begins to rehearse in front of God and in front of the people all the things that God has done for them in their past. I would just tell you that in my life, it's really easy for me over my past, I can look back over my past and see where God took care of me, where he taught me, where he helped me, where when I got afraid of things, I can see where he worked things out. Here's Jehoshaphat, he's scared to death, his nation is about to be attacked, and Jehoshaphat stops, turns his attention and the attention of his people toward God, and he reviews how great God is and all the things, all the great things that God has done for them in their history. Now that's not my instinct. Is it yours? Here's how we pray. Oh God, help! Oh God, look! Oh God, did you know? And it's almost as if we expect God to reply, well, thanks for the heads up. I, that was going to sneak up on me. You know, I did not see that coming. I'm really glad you cried out like that because that's completely surprised me. No, that's not God's response. That's how we act. That's the way we live life. We kind of go through life thinking, man, God doesn't know what's going to happen next. I'm scared to death. What's going to happen? Listen, whatever's got you petrified this morning, God knows what it is, and he knows what's going to happen. It's not news to him. And it doesn't scare him. And he's a big God and he's able. We instinctively focus on us and our problem. And Jehoshaphat says, no, we're not going to go with instinct. We're going we're to focus everything about us, even to the point of fasting, on the God who is God, who has saved us in the past, and is going to do something for us in the future. He has the ability. Now, I said this last week. It doesn't always work out well for you, okay? It didn't always, Jesus, it didn't work out great for Jesus at the end. But Jesus constantly was saying, God, you're able. You're able. You're God. I trust you. You're faithful. I know what you can do. And I'm given to you. And God, if this doesn't end the way I want it to go, that's okay. I just want you to know I trust you. See, what you want is for somebody to stand up and say, whatever it is that you're afraid of isn't worth being afraid of. That's not what I'm saying. There are things that come into our life that are scary things. You have every reason to be afraid of what you're afraid of. What I'm telling you is when you face those things, if you focus on that, your actions and the things you do spiritually might not be the best things. What you need to do is focus back on God's ability to meet you in your circumstances and take care of you. He goes on and he begins to talk about what they need. Verse 10. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. 
So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Verse 12, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. And then this next phrase, I'm going to want us to repeat this, okay? You should be underlining these things. These are great things. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I'd like for us to repeat that as a church. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. See, when you're afraid, that's where your heart and mind need to go. God, I don't know what to do, but my heart and my eyes are on you. They're not on the horizon. They're not on the problem. They're not on my fear. They're on you. And God, I'm scared to death. But I'm going to focus everything I got on you and not on the problem. See, that's the prayer of a faithful man. That's the prayer of a faithful woman. It's a prayer that begins with who God is and what he's capable of. It is a prayer that rehearses God's faithfulness to us in our recent past and even our not-so-recent past. God, we're powerless. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed and fastened on you. We know you got this. This isn't a surprise. This doesn't overwhelm you. It overwhelms me. It doesn't overwhelm you. And then they did the most difficult thing of all. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. And they waited. I don't know about you. But I don't wait very well. You? I don't wait very well. I want to do something. And the tendency is to say, God, I'm going to do this. You just sit over there, and I'm going to get to work. And then I get busy because I'm doing something. And even if it's the wrong thing, I need to do something. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You just you feel better when you're, when you're working, when you're getting involved, when you're doing something. And I look back at, at some of the most embarrassing moments of my life and some of the words that I wish I could take back, some of the times when I, you know, I was afraid and, and I felt like I needed to say something or do something. And I, I, those are the times that I've done stuff that I'm like, man, I wish I could go back and redo that. I wish I could have a do-over there because I was so afraid and I, in my fear, I, I, I said the wrong thing or I, I did the wrong thing. Man, I wish I could do that over. And yet Jehoshaphat and the people, after they cried out to God, they waited I don't know how long they waited. It doesn't really tell us. God was faithful. He spoke. He gave them a a course of action. Verse 14, then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel. And then you get a little bit of a, a lineage for Jehaziel. You go to verse 15. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 16, tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the path, pass of Ziz. Don't try to say that five times fast. That'll get you in trouble. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. 
Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And nothing changed. Nothing had changed for them yet. Nothing had changed, but they had a worship service. Nothing had changed. God hadn't answered their prayer. They were still under attack. The the enemy is still coming. They haven't gotten any word that any of that's been called off. No, he's still coming. And they paused and they worshiped. And then they took the next step and they did what they were commanded to do. Verse 20, early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, and now he does the Braveheart speech, right? This is when, you know, all of us as leaders, we're taught to do the Braveheart speech when everybody's scared and it's all, it's like, you know, you don't know what to do. You just stand up and you do the Braveheart speech. He doesn't do the Braveheart speech. Come on, we've got to be courageous. Not yet. It's not what Jehoshaphat does. His first line of defense is to fall on his face and worship and ask for God's help. Then once God has answered, he rallies his people and he talks to them And this is what he says, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. See, it's not, hey, you've got to be courageous. That's not what the message is. The message is, God's got this. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. Verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord. That sounds good, doesn't it? He's going to appoint some men to sing to the Lord. Guys, and we, if, if, if the leader said, hey, we need, I need some guys to sing to the Lord, you'd go, I'm in, I'll do that. Okay, come up front, We're, some men to sing to the Lord. Now watch what happens. And to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. So he he puts the choir, he's recruiting these guys, and then he puts them at the front, in front of the army. So all those guys he just recruited, hey, you want to sing? Yeah, I'll sing. Okay, we're going to put you at the front of the army. Whoa. You know, that's when you're trying to put your hand back in your pocket and kind of slink off to the side. Like, I'm really not very good at singing. So before we end the story, I want to give you four words that are kind of a synopsis of what Jehoshaphat did, and they serve as a model for us and what we need to do when we face our fears. Here's what I know about you. I know that there's a large majority of people in the room this morning that have something that's a fear for them. There's something out there that's got them worried, that's got them scared. Some of you are facing some medical stuff. There's some job stuff. I mean, I, I talk to you. I get emails. We, we, you know, there's stuff. There's, I just know that. There's stuff. So, so what, you know, what's the model? What are we supposed to do when we're afraid? And by f- fear, I mean, it, it can be a circumstantial fear where you get a phone call and suddenly life spins out of control. It can be the kind of fear you deal with kind of on a daily, daily basis. You're afraid of being alone. You're afraid of abandonment. You're afraid of being poor. You're afraid of not succeeding. You're afraid of looking foolish. 
And there are times in your day and your schedule when those old emotions kind of rear their ugly head and you begin to feel like you have to stay in control. You begin to feel like you need to do something. And you know it's just fear. What do you do in that moment? I want to give you these, these four words. Here they are. You ready? The first one is this, worship. First thing you got to do is worship. You won't feel like it. None of us feel like it when we're afraid. If I come to see you in the hospital, I don't care whether you're deathly ill or whether it's just a you know, pneumonia thing or it's a cold or you, know, you broke something, um, slipped on a dip and broke your lip, I don't know. What, you know. Whatever it is that you've done, chances are good when I pray with you, I'm going to direct you in worship. We're going to worship. I'm going to, at some point, I'm going to say, God, we worship you. We don't want to focus on the illness. We don't want to focus on how it's going to get fixed, we, not the fear of it. God, we worship you. Because right now, we're not, we're not really thinking about worship, so I want to help this family to understand this is a worship time. We, we need to be worshiping. So we worship. The second thing we do is we wait once we worship, we wait to see what God is going to do and to see what God is going to ask us to do, and then we walk because eventually there will be something that God's going to give you to do. In response, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to walk. We're ready to walk in response to what God has called us to do. And then the last one is this, we watch. Now, I would like for us to say those four words together. Say them with me. Worship, wait, walk, watch. Let's say it again. Worship, Wait, walk, watch. Okay, do you know why the first thing we need to do is worship? You know what worship does? Here's what worship does. Worship takes our fear and it places it in the context of everything that God is able to do. The context of all our fears, a financial thing, a health thing, an emotional thing, the context of all your fears is the greatness and the power of God. That's the context of it. The context of all your fears is the, is the promise of, of God to be a good father to his children. The context of all our fear is the greatness of God when we worship and we refocus our attention off the events, off the circumstances, off our past, off our failures, and we begin to refocus on the goodness and the greatness of God. That's when things start to turn for us. And over time, as you worship and as you rehearse God's goodness to you and his faithfulness in the past, your big old huge fear, that thing that, that just it's scary to you. It starts to shrink and it gets smaller and smaller as it gets measured against the goodness and the power and the ability of God through your worship where you say, God, you're bigger than this. And I'm not going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to put my focus on how big you are and your ability. This thing, God, whatever it is that's scaring me, is it bigger than me? Yes. Is it bigger than you? No. Is, it a, is there a cause to be scared? Yeah, there's probably a reason you should be scared. But God, there's no reason for you to be afraid because you, this is nothing for you. You're able. And here's what you will experience when you do that. When you worship, when you take your mind and your attention off this thing and you put it on God and you begin to worship, here's what begins to happen for you your circumstances, before they ever change, before the army is ever defeated, you will experience peace. 
You'll have peace when you worship. As a pastor, I have walked with people through just about every imaginable thing. I've, I've walked with families as they've watched loved ones die. I've, I've walked with people through abuse, through rape, through disease, you know, children's stuff, injury, difficult births, you name it. And I see basically two kinds of people. I see people who are driven and controlled by their fear and the insecurity of what's going on around them and what's happening and what's going to happen. And they get worked up and they get loud and they, they panic and they do things that they shouldn't do, spend money they shouldn't spend, make decisions they shouldn't make. And then I've walked with some people through some of the most traumatic things you can imagine and they have peace uncanny just this unexplainable peace when you take your fears and your insecurities your concerns your problems and you place them in the context of a god who is able and 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 you you start focusing on his greatness both now and in the past in your life your fears begin to shrink, and it puts your fear in proper perspective. And here's what it will do. It will keep you from doing stupid things because you're afraid. You won't make stupid promises, and you won't do stupid things that you'll regret later because the proper context for our fear is the greatness and the power of God. And Jehoshaphat understood that. His first line of defense was to drop to his knees, not to pray. See, we all pray. His first line of defense was to worship. Second was, was the word wait. This is a tough one. I'm not advocating irresponsibility, okay? I'm not advocating laziness. What I'm saying is when you and I are afraid, generally we get ideas that are inappropriate. Sometimes when, when we get afraid, we make decisions and we do things that, you know, on an impulse that aren't good things. And we get tempted to do things to solve the problem that, that it's not going to fix it, it's going to make it worse. So once you've worshipped and once God's begun to give you a sense of peace that it's going to be okay, wait, wait, wait. Before you begin to start doing things and try to solve things, then walk. This takes courage. Eventually there will be something to do. There will be an action to take, but let me warn you, when God gives you direction in the midst of your fears, he is going to ask you to do some unusual things. It's going to seem counterintuitive. Sometimes those things, they see, you're going to hear it and you're going to kind of get this sense, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, but it's not, it's, you're going to think, really? It's going to be that moment when you're supposed to use the oar, but you want to grab the side of the boat. And God's like, no, don't <laughs> Don't grab the side of the boat. We're going to use the oar. Yeah, God, but I'll feel better if I let go of the oar and grab the boat. Yeah, but you'll flip the boat. You're afraid of losing, and he'll say, let go. You're afraid of falling, and he says, jump. You're afraid they're going to leave. You're afraid that relationship has fallen apart, and he's going to say, let them know they're free to go. It's going to be some of the scariest, most counterintuitive stuff like putting the choir in front of the enemy. Like, it, you know, 
Why would you do that? God, are you sure this is a good idea? And God's going, just trust me. You asked me to help, right? You want me to help? Haven't I given you peace? Haven't you waited on me? Now allow me to do the unusual because, and remember this if you don't remember anything else, your greatest fear is God's greatest opportunity in your life. Your greatest fear is God's greatest opportunity. And we only allow God to take advantage of our fear when we, when we keep things in the proper perspective. And as we keep it in perspective through worship, and over time he's going to give you direction, and it's going to be somewhat counterintuitive sometimes, your greatest fear is God's greatest opportunity. That means he's going to call on you from time to time to do unusual things in the midst of your fear. Not irresponsible things. Not stupid things. I'm just saying, be ready. And then the fourth word is watch. Watch and see what God does through your circumstances to gain glory for himself through your fear. I want you to see what happens in this story. They take the choir, they put them up front. You know, they got to be thinking, what in the world? And they send them ahead of the army. Army's following behind. Verse 22, as they begin to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Somehow they begin to fight with each other. These armies that were coming after Jehoshaphat's people. Verse 23, the Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir. So these armies, these three armies that came against Jehoshaphat, they get into an argument over something and they begin to attack one another. They they rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. And then the two armies that have defeated the one turn on each other. Verse 24, when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. <laughs> the choir must have been so relieved, right? Like, woo! No one had escaped. Verse 25, so Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value. Here's one of the things you need to understand about this. In that time, clothing, implements, weapons, that stuff's hard to come by. That stuff's not growing on trees, right? We need a spade or a shovel. We go to the hardware store and buy one. You know, you need some clothes, you go to a store that sells clothes and buy them off the rack. It didn't happen like that back then. Good clothes were hard to find. Good implements, good tools, good weapons, hard to find. They walk up on this thing and it's like, Merry Christmas, here you go. More than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, as they assembled in the Valley of Baraka, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. And then look at this next part because here's the watch, okay? The fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. That is ultimately what God was after to begin with. The fear of the Lord is something that Jehoshaphat understood so clearly. The fear of the Lord is saying, God, yes, regardless of what you ask of me, yes, the answer is yes. 
And God would say, well, I haven't told you what I want yet. I don't care. I, I trust you. You're, you're more capable. You're bigger. You're more able than this thing I'm afraid of. You tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let this thing that's scaring me get in the way of me and you. God, I'm looking at you. So yes, whatever you want, I'm going to do. That's what it means to fear God, that as much as I fear him or her or this or that or these circumstances, whatever you want me to do, I'll do because my fear of you is greater than my fear of all these things. And because Jehoshaphat understood that, the fear of the Lord actually settled in on these surrounding nations, which is what God wanted to see happen from the very beginning. That's the whole reason God established Israel to begin with. So that the surrounding nations would know what he was like. So they would look at him and go, man, look what a great God he is to the Israelites. And when it was all said and done, it was like, you know, he was hoping everybody would go, so that's what God was after. Here's the point. Your greatest fear, a circumstance, an an insecurity, Something from your past. Your greatest fear is God's greatest opportunity, and he wants to do something significant through your fear. But in order for that to happen, you've got to maintain his perspective to do that. Your first defense is worship. That's first. The next thing, you've got to wait. And then you're going to have to walk. There's going to be something that's going to need to be done, and it may be counterintuitive. It may not at first seem right you just got to listen to the voice of god and then finally you watch and you see what god does in your life now we're done the series is over it's been a great series i've learned a ton preparing this for you here's what i know some of you walked in here this morning and you're carrying stuff that petrifies you you're afraid you're so scared you don't want anybody to know You don't want your spouse to know. You don't want your kids to know. But you're scared. And before you walk into this week and before you try to walk out of here and do what we've talked about this morning, we're going to practice. And the first thing we're going to do before we walk out there into all that fear and before you, you know, in here it's easy because we come in here and we talk about God and it's like, woo, let's go, let's do it. And then you walk and get in your car and you're like, oh, I'm scared. I'm scared. So before we do that, before we walk into the fear, and before we walk out into a world that just is designed to rip us apart and make us afraid, we're going to practice what we preach and we're going to worship. Okay, we're going to sing the words that they, that they talked about in the, in the scriptures this morning. And I don't want this to just be a normal, you know, hey, we're singing before we leave church. I want this to be an anthem for us this morning, okay? When we sing this this morning, I want to hear your voice. Lifting praise and lifting worship above whatever it is that has you afraid this morning. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Father, we're your people. And we're trying to walk every day in a way that would make you happy and pleased with us. And we want to glorify and honor you. We want our lives to speak to your glory. But Father, we are human beings. And as such, we we face things that are bigger than us, we readily admit that, and if we're totally honest, they scare us to death. So, Father, I pray that as we 
have learned this morning a different way to approach our fear, I pray that we walk out of here having worshiped, willing to wait, willing to walk, and ready to watch. And Father, at the end of it all, the world would be able to see, the people who know us would know, God showed up. God's awesome, and he's able. And that, Father, the context of our fear is your ability to do great and mighty things. So, Father, we're about to worship you. Would you receive our praise as we look toward you with our fear in the rearview mirror? We're going to focus on you. Lord, we just want to tell you we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.